reading from 1 Kings chapter 17, beginning at verse 8. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. And so Elijah rose and went to Zarephath. And as he came to the city gates, behold, there was a widow gathering sticks. And he said to her, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And she was going to get it. And he said to her, bring me also a morsel of bread from your hand. And she said to Elijah, as sure as your God lives, I have nothing baked. I have only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug, and I'm now gathering sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat of it and die. And Elijah said to her, go and do as you've said, but first make me a little cake and bring it to me that I may eat it. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent nor the jug of oil become empty until the day the Lord brings water upon the earth. And so she went and did as Elijah had told her. And she and her family ate for many days, and the jar of flour was not spent, and the jug of oil did not become empty according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken through Elijah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to be more generous. I want to be more generous, generous with my words, generous with my time, generous with my resources. I want to be more generous. We all agree that generosity is a good thing, especially when we're on the receiving end of someone else's generosity. But we also often like being on the giving end of generosity. It often feels good to give. And for many of us, we would agree that moms, mothers, are often our earliest teachers about generosity. Our mothers are some of the first teachers about generosity in our lives. Uh, Forbes magazine has had an article a number of years ago, 2011, that looked at the idea of what if we remunerated mothers for their time? What if we actually paid mothers for the amount that they do, right, that they do freely for us? Well, uh, there was a survey put out and they they came up with this. They said the typical stay-at-home mom works almost 97 hours a week with roles as varied as daycare supervisor, tutor, psychologist, chef, housekeeper, nurse, computer operator, facilities manager, van driver. And if remunerated, this is back in 2011, The stay-at-home mom's base salary, Forbes argued, would be $37,000 plus $78,000 in overtime, (laughs) equaling $115,000. Moms that work outside the home would still have that mom base salary of $37,000 plus $24,000 in overtime, which would equal $61,000 on top of their day jobs. Now, I, I, I... 
got that stat out there and I told that to Monica yesterday and she just shook her head and said, you can't put a price on motherhood. And she's right, you can't, it's priceless. But the point is this, we see generosity so easily early on in many of our mothers because they're doing all of this and they're not getting paid. It's just poured out in love. Generosity is a lesson that we need to learn and we begin learning it on early on from our mothers. I want to be more generous. Today we're looking at a mother in scripture. In 1 Kings 17, we see a mother here, the widow of Zarephath, she and her son. And in this mother, we see some incredible, radical generosity. You see, in verse 12, I'm looking at 1 Kings 17, verse 12, we find out just how desperate her situation is. She says to Elijah, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. She's literally dying of starvation. She and her son in the context of this drought and this famine. She is at the end of her rope. She is absolutely done for. But Elijah pushes and says, go and do what you're doing, but first make me a little cake that I may eat. Bring it to me. And do you know what's amazing? In verse 15, she does it. Verse 15 says, and she went and did as Elijah had said. She brought even in her absolute poverty this gift, this generosity to Elijah. I mean, what's difficult for me with this text is that I've never experienced poverty that looks anything like this. And yet I know in my own life that if I begin to feel in want at all, if I begin to feel the pinch, if pressure comes in, my generosity goes out the window in a heartbeat. If I have the littlest bit of pressure come in on my life, the littlest bit of pinch, my generosity is long gone. And yet here is this woman in absolute poverty, still generous. She kind of reminds us of another widow we meet in scripture. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus is outside the temple with his disciples and we read this. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. Sometimes we call it the widow's mites. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. See, in those moments when we look at widows like this, both the widow of Zarephath and the widow and her might, there's a part of me that wants to stop them and say, wait a second, th this is foolish. God could not be requiring this of you. This is ridiculous. This is foolish. This is unthinking. Why are you doing this? This could not be the generosity that God calls you to. It's, it's like the Sunday school teacher who's with a group of her students, little 10-year-olds, and she says to the class, she says, speaking on stewardship, she says, would you give $1,000 to the church? And they all say, yes, we would. 
And she said, would you give $100 to the church? And they said, yes, we would. She says, what about $10? Would you give $10 to the church? Yes, we would. And finally she says, what about $1? Would you give $1 to the church? And everyone in the room except one boy says, yes, we would. And she turns to the one boy and she says, Jim, you said you'd give $1,000 to God, you'd give 100, you'd give 10. Why not the single dollar? And, he, and Jim says, well, here's the thing. I've actually got a dollar on me. See, what these widows show us, what they know, what we often forget, is that generosity is not something that is just for the good times. Generosity is something that is for all times in our lives. God is calling us in Scripture not just to be generous in the good moments, in the great harvest years, but God is calling us to be generous in all seasons, all the time, because here's what this widow of Zarephath comes to know. She knows that the only faithful response to meeting God is generosity. I'll say that again. The widow of Zarephath knows that the only faithful response to meeting God is generosity because the God we meet is the generous God. The God we meet shows us a generosity that we see nowhere else. And this widow here encounters God in this text. Here in 1 Kings 17, she meets God. And here's the God she meets. Here's the generous God she meets. She meets a God who is generous with strangers because she's a stranger. She meets a God who's generous with stuff, possessions, everything we have. But not only is this God generous with strangers, and generous with our stuff, but the God that she meets here in 1 Kings 17 is generous even in sacrifice. First, she meets the God who is generous with strangers. She is a stranger. We read in verse nine, arise, Elijah, and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Elijah is being sent to Sidon, Zarephath, and, and the background of the story is this is the 8th century BC and King Ahab of Israel has had a political marriage to the daughter of the king of Sidon and the daughter of Sidon's name is Jezebel. Ahab marries Jezebel, she's the daughter of Sidon. It's a good political match. But what Jezebel does is she brings all of her pagan religion into Israel. She brings with her 200 priests of Baal, their god of fertility. And she begins erecting statues and worship there in Israel. Now, here's the important thing. Israel has always, up to this point, been tempted to go after other gods. But never has there been a government program in Israel supporting that. Never before has there been a government program in Israel run through the king's office that is supporting pagan worship in Israel. And so this is the context. There's this great contest going on between the God of Israel and the God of Sidon. And Elijah, the prophet of the God of Israel, is told to go to Zarephath, to go to where Jezebel's from. Jezebel is from Sidon. And not only is he to go there, but here's the surprise, here's the shock. 
The shock is that God is gonna provide for Elijah from a widow of Zarephath. There's this word here in verse nine and verse 10. It's a great little word in Hebrew. It's the word hene. And hene is where we get the word behold from. But hene has got much more punch to it than behold. Hene is, you know, sometimes we say behold, sometimes it literally means look, pay attention. I like to sometimes say, hold the phone, stop the press. This is a shock. The word shows up twice in two verses. In other words, the shock is not only is Elijah taken to Zarephath, but God then says, behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. In other words, the first behold, the first hene, hold the phone, stop the press, a widow, a pagan widow in Zarephath, Jezebel's land, is going to feed you. It's a shock. She's an outsider. She's a foreigner. In other words, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is actually communicating with and using this pagan woman for Elijah. But then in verse 10, it says again that word, behold, hene, hold the phone, stop the presses. He goes to the city gate and behold, there she is, a widow. I mean, you think Elijah saying to himself, Lord, are you really about to do this? Are you going to use one of Jezebel's kindred to feed me, a prophet of Israel? And that's exactly what Yahweh's doing. That's exactly what God is doing. Don't miss the fact that this woman is a foreigner. She's a stranger. A stranger to Israel and a stranger to God, a foreigner. We had a pool party at our house yesterday. A bunch of nine-year-olds. And you know what those nine-year-olds said to me? Every one of them except the Canadian nine-year-old. All these Texan nine-year-olds, do you know what they kept saying to me throughout the pool party? They came up and they said, would you please turn the pool heater on? And so I went to the pool heater and I looked at the pool heater, and do you know what the pool heater said? They said it was a balmy 78 degrees. So I said to them, 78 degrees is perfect pool temperature. And they all looked at me like I'm a foreigner. <laughs> it's perfect temperature to swim. But see, she's a foreigner, she's an outsider, she's a stranger to Israel and a stranger to God. I mean, imagine this woman recognizing the fact, I am from Zarephath. I've got no history with Yahweh. I've got no standing with the God of Israel, no collateral. And yet, this God comes and meets me. A stranger, an outsider, one that does not even deserve his presence. Because what she's discovering is at the very heart of this God that she's meeting, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that at the core of who he is, he is a God of grace. A God who calls people to him, not who've earned their way, not who've merited their way, but he calls people who do not deserve him to himself. He invites strangers and foreigners and aliens to himself. And she knows it. And she's got a word for that generosity. She's being shown this incredible generosity from God. He would even call me a woman from Zarephath. And that begins to change her. And you know, it will begin to change you and I too as we encounter this God. As we encounter and meet this living God 
who was so generous to invite the stranger and the alien into his presence, those who do not deserve his presence, we will be changed. But here's the key, we've gotta recognize where we cast ourselves in this story. It will go nowhere good if you and I cast ourselves as Elijah in this story. But it will go all the right directions if we cast ourselves appropriately as the widow. See, you and I are the widow in the story. You and I are the ones that are strangers to God, who were estranged and alienated from God. As 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 tells us, about where we were before we knew Christ Jesus. He uses the same language of foreigner and stranger and alien. He says, and you who were once alienated from God and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. When we realize that we are the strangers who've been brought near, when we are the undeserving ones who've been brought near, we begin to be changed by that same generosity that this widow of Zarephath experiences. We have been brought near. But it's not just that she meets the God who is generous to strangers, but she meets the God who is generous with stuff, with material, with possessions, with all that we have. You see, it's not just that she's encountering one who welcomes her as a stranger, but she's finally realizing, where does everything I have come from? Who has provided this for me? Do we know who has provided everything for us? I mean, everything? There's this moment here in verse 13 and 14 where Elijah promises this incredible miracle. The jar of flour will not be spent. The, ju the, um, the jug of oil will not go empty. And it happens. The jar of flour is not spent, and the jug of oil does not go empty. It's a miracle. But we would be missing the point of this if we just narrowed in on the miracle and said, wow, you know, God bent space and time to make that incredible miracle take place and not recognize that what he's really doing here is he's putting a sign up for her to show her, do you understand where everything you have comes from? Do you understand where everything that has been provided for you comes from? I'm giving you this miracle to put a big neon sign up that says everything you have comes from me. Would you see that? You see, back in verse 1 of chapter 17, this, as I mentioned, this contest between Baal and Yahweh is going on. And, and again, Baal, that god of the Sidonites, is a god of fertility. So he provides the rain and the crops and, and all the, the animals are breeding well to provide food. And so this god of fertility is, is the god that's in contest here. So what does Yahweh's prophet do as the chapter begins? Verse one, now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab the king, as the Lord the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. In other words, what Elijah says is, great, your wife wants to bring in Baal, this god of fertility. Let's see how well the god of fertility of the Sidonites does when there's no rain. Three years this contest goes on. Because God is demonstrating through Elijah that there is one God in heaven who provides everything we have. And in this moment, this widow of Zarephath is actually meeting him. 
She's beginning to realize this is the God who provides everything I have. God has provided it all. Do we know who has provided everything for us? Again, on Mother's Day, we often can say our mothers have provided so much. I know that my mother uh, provided me a lot, um, and, and this is just, this is all in jest, but I'll say my mother provided me many things. She taught me many things. She taught me, for example, religion. When she would say things like, you'd better pray that this comes out of the carpet. <laughs> my mother provided me a sense of irony when she'd say, stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about. My mother provided me with a sense of globalization when she'd say, there are starving children in the world who would love your spinach. My mother provided me with a sense of anticipation. Just wait till your father gets home. <laughs> My mother provided me with a sense of humor. You know, if you break your legs falling out of that tree, don't come running to me. <laughs> My mother uh, gave me, provided me a sense of unconditional love. I'll, I'll never stop loving you, she'd say, but don't think I haven't considered murder. And finally, my mother provided me with a sense of justice. One day you'll have kids, and I hope they turn out just like you. <laughs> but in all seriousness, do we know who provides everything we have? You see, we live in the same kind of pluralistic day that Elijah lived in. Maybe it's not some, you know, Baal god of fertility from the Sidonites, but there's other competing factors in our world declaring that these are where we get our provision. It may be our jobs, our bank account, it may be our spouses and our families, it may be the government, fill in the blank. But do these truly provide for us? Or is there a God in heaven who provides everything we have. This is what the widow of Zarephath is being confronted with. There is a God who's provided everything you have, all the stuff you have. I remember in eighth grade, Mr. Zed, or in, I guess, America, Mr. Z, um, Mr. Zed was an early evangelist in my life. In eighth grade, he would come into our classroom and he'd wear a, a hockey sweater and he brought his guitar and he'd play Bob Dylan songs for us. And he taught us about the world. And I remember one day when I had made some arrogant comments, sort of putting myself above someone else as if, oh, those idiots out there, look at me. He, he turned to me in front of the whole class. I'll never forget it. And he said, Paul, you need to remember that you didn't choose where you were born. And you didn't choose your family. You didn't even choose your intellect or your genetic structure, or your abilities, and you certainly don't choose those daily circumstances that come in front of you. Someone else is providing those to you. Will you remember that? And for this angry eighth grade atheist, he put a rock in my shoe that I could not escape from. Is there one who's providing it all? Is this all just from anywhere or nowhere or is this fate? Or is there actually a God in heaven who is providing everything I have? The widow of Zarephath is confronted and meets this God. She finds that he's generous in welcoming her as an outsider, as a stranger. And he is generous in the stuff that he provides. Even in her poverty, 
Even with so little, she recognizes that even what she has, this tiny bit is from him. The Bible declares that all we have is a miracle provision from the Lord. And we say that daily when we pray as Christians. Give us this day our daily bread. This widow meets the God who's generous with strangers and generous with stuff and she responds generously. Verse 15, she went and did as Elijah had said. She, she made a little cake for him even in the midst of her poverty. But you know, she only knew part of the story. She only knew part of the story. She didn't even know the whole story. She, she'd met this generous God who welcomes strangers, this generous God who's generous with his stuff. But she didn't even know the rest of the story that you and I have the opportunity of knowing. You see, as this story goes on, as I close, there's, there's one more part to this. Some other time I'll preach on this next text of scripture, but Elijah comes back in some time and she finds that the widow's son has died. And it's a strange moment. Elijah takes that son upstairs, lays him on the bed, and then he does this, this, this crazy act of, it says in verse 21, he stretched himself out and lay on top of the boy three times and prayed, oh Lord God, bring this boy back to life. And he was brought back to life. And you wanna say, what's with this stretching out on the boy thing? What is that all about? And it's this. You see, God is showing in this moment that he's not just a God who welcomes strangers. He's not just a God who's generous with stuff, but he's a God who's generous with sacrifice. Because Numbers 19 tells us that you should never touch a dead body. Elijah has no business touching this dead body. You, you don't touch dead bodies because the sense is you'll become unclean. You'll become defiled. The death is lingering around this dead body. Why would Elijah put himself in such a dangerous position? Because as he stretches himself out on the boy, he's saying to Yahweh, oh Lord, let this death come into me instead. Let me be the one who dies, not this boy. Take me, not him. In this moment, we find Christ in this story. The one who many years later, 800 years later, would go up to the top of Calvary and he would be stretched out before humanity and he'd be saying to his father, take me, not them. Let their death be on me. See, this is the God of sacrifice that the widow of Zarephath is only getting a tiny piece of. This God who when he gives to us, will not just welcome us as strangers, We'll not just be generous in what he, all the stuff he gives us, but we'll be generous to the point of sacrifice when it costs him everything. As St. Paul says in Romans chapter eight, verse 31, he says, if, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for all of us. Will he not with him give us all things? This is the language of generosity. I want to be more generous. Generous with my words, generous with my time, generous with my resources. I need to look at this mother here in scripture, this widow of Zarephath and her radical generosity. She knows what I often forget. That generosity is the only faithful response if we've met the generous God. 
In the first couple centuries of the church, there was a practice of the early Christians that got the notice, got the attention of the pagan culture around them. See, in the first couple centuries, it was common that unwanted newborn babies would be exposed. They would simply be left literally naked in the street, abandoned, exposed to the elements to die. And the early Christians, although they were being hunted down for their faith, although they were impoverished and poor and struggling and had so little, these early Christians took it upon themselves as part of their mission to find these exposed babies and to adopt them into their homes, even in the midst of great poverty and scarcity, and would raise them as their own. But the day would come when those mothers and fathers would have to say to their adolescents, and it's Mother's Day, so let's just say the mothers, the mothers would say to their adolescent children, you were adopted, you were exposed, and we brought you in our home. And in that world of poverty and scarcity, you know those children would have to ask their moms and dads, why would you possibly take me in when you had so little? And of course, the only response that that mother could have would be to say this, God has been so generous to me and Jesus, my child. How could I do otherwise? And I'll tell you from that moment on, that child would never have to have the gospel articulated to them again because they had seen it in that moment, lived in their mother. I want to be more generous because that will change the world. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.